I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Dick. On the show today, Britbox International expands into the US market and announces new transatlantic commissions, but will their restructure pay off? Local newspapers are poised for industrial action in the UK, and UK podcast production company Novel poaches Julie Shapiro from Radio Tokyo. Plus, leaders in disability and inclusion Sam Tatlow and Kirsty Walker unpack their passport scheme that's unfolding in the TV industry right now. And in the media quiz, we'll explore ambitious deals being struck across the sector. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. And in the news this week, BBC iPlayer has set record viewing figures over the weekend for content from Glastonbury with 34 million streams. Bauer Media are moving from their home at One Golden Square to a brand new development named The Lantern in Euston. Over at Substack, the newsletter startup's laying off 14% of its staff. As CEO Chris Best shared the decision with his team and with the internet, saying that market conditions are bad and may get worse for an extended period of time, and they needed to batten down the hatches. And tributes have poured in for podcaster and cancer awareness campaigner Dame Deborah James. In her final weeks, Deborah raised millions of pounds for bowel cancer research. But in today's show, I've got two experts here with me to unpack the stories shaking up the media industry this week. First up, media commentator Kate Bulkley. Hi, Kate. Hey, how are you? I'm really good. Uh, how's things stateside? What's been happening? Well, there's a lot of things going on. In fact, I know that we're going to talk later a little bit about uh, Bob Chapek and Disney and his uh, new three-year contract. But all that's been around the Roe versus Wade decision, which has, of course, been roiling the states in general but media companies in particular yeah just on that there's been some pushback for the media companies taking the progressive view which also is the view of the majority of america isn't it Mm -hmm. and then a lot of companies have promised their staff to look after them in states that are criminalizing straight away yes that's exactly right um which is going to be my point i mean disney came out fairly strongly and said they would pay, it was considered healthcare and they'd pay for employees to travel to other states if they needed to, but they weren't alone. I mean, a lot of media companies have come out and said that Netflix, Paramount, Comcast, Warner Brothers Discovery, Sony, Meta, we're still waiting to see what Amazon says, but these companies that I mentioned have all said we will fund this as part of healthcare, that this is considered healthcare. And also joining me on the show, um, back uh, after a little while away, uh, podcaster and audio critic Caroline Crampton. Hi, Caroline. Hello, thank you for having me. No worries. In your podcast this week, you've been mulling over the dark side of true crime. Did you unravel any mysteries about the genre? I think 
myself and my guest, Emma Burquist, came to the conclusion that there isn't really such a thing as, quote, ethical true crime, but it is perhaps to be, it is perhaps possible to be an ethical consumer of true crime. I think by which we mean not getting too drawn into the gory facts of murders and remembering that there are still human beings involved. Yes, it's the, it's the interesting thing, especially as, as the podcast sector expands, people are plundering more and more stories, maybe without always the right amount of forethought, I suppose. I think that's definitely what bothers me about it, is the the rapid turnaround, the kind of collapse of any sense of of cycle to it, that something can happen and there can be a true crime podcast about it within a couple of months now, rather than there being a sense that we're looking at historical or cold cases where perhaps everybody involved has long since passed on. It can still be happening when the podcast starts coming out. Yes. Uh, well, um, if I make a a link from one thing to another, uh, landing on Hulu this week, the second series of Only Murders in the Building, which is um, a show which obviously has done well in the streaming world. And lots of streaming news this week, including news from BritBox. That's the streamer run by the BBC and ITV. They've announced a move to a two-region structure with more of a focus on US expansion in a bid to become the global leader in British content. Kate, you're over that way. Can BritBox establish itself as a uh, a streaming force, even a tier two streaming force? Well, I think so in the sense that they want to be very British. So the idea has always been with BritBox that it becomes sort of the British home or a home for British drama, home for British crime, home for British comedy, etc. And because it has two strong backers in in the face of BBC and ITV, that you know obviously puts them ahead of things. They also uh, are getting content from Channel Five. They're also getting content from Four. It is strong. I think the change is that in terms of the UK, BritBox is kind of being pushed into this new ITVX thing, the streaming service that ITV is launching in November. They're going to cherry pick the stuff that they want for their new ITVX service. So that was kind of a big change. Then the two region structure, I think, is what Rima Sakan, who's the CEO, is thinking this is the way to try to cover the world. Um, you know, they've got sort of the US Canada thing, and then they've got the rest of the world, but obviously leaving out markets like the UK, where ITV is going to take the lead there and the BBC. It's a different approach. Will it work? I don't know. I mean, they did a very big presentation to producers and said, this is what we want. You know, we're open arms. It has to be British, but we're looking for everything. You know, it can be drama. It can be scripted. It can be comedy. Uh, it could be hospital. I mean, whatever you want. So we'll see what people uh, come up with and what they're willing to pay. Because, of course, that's where we are now with the streaming world. You know, the, the cost of producing really standout content just continues to go up. And so it all comes down to, you know, how much are you willing to pay and what commissions will you get? Obviously, there's lots of streaming competition for BritBox. Is there any, like, British streaming competition for them? Have they got anybody sort of in their vertical that's doing something similar? Or is it a good space for them to, to be in to build a market? Well, I mean, they compete with everybody. I mean, if you think about, you know, there's lots of global streamers out there. Netflix, Disney, Paramount's just launched. So they've got lots of competition and all of those companies buy British content. So it's a question of, you know, what content they'll be able to continue to acquire and at what windowing point, in other words, how old will it be? And one of the things that Rima Sakan said is that obviously they're going to lean into, let's say, the long tail of content. So, you know, they'll have some of the classic uh, British shows on their service and they'll also try to commission new stuff. 
but I think now for everyone, it's a mix. You've got to have some kind of long tail, but you also need to have those pent poles, something that sort of says, hey, come look at me this month. This is why you want to subscribe, you know, or this week. It's a competitive space, Matt. I mean, there's no kidding about it. This is not everybody's going to survive. But I think if you've got a USP that you can somehow stick to, and in this case, BritBox is very clear that they are British flavored content. That's the thing. Will it work? I think so. We'll see. Well, BritBox CEO uh, Rima Sarkin has been hiring as well. She has hired Kerry Ball, who was previously at NBC Universal and Discovery as the Chief of Acquisitions and Commercial Officer. Just a small job there. Um, she says yeah. that um, <laughs> she says that there's going to be a slate of new commissions announced, including twelve mystery and twelve crime shows per year. Caroline, you like a, a little bit of crime. Is more in this area a good thing? Do you think these TV companies are going to also look to podcasts? for more of their content as well? Well, I think the podcaster TV pipeline is pretty well established across the industry now. And lots of streamers and other production companies see podcasting as a, a low-cost way of testing out IP. You know, it's much, much cheaper to make something as a podcast series, see if it develops an audience, and then you can take it to the screen if you feel that there's the justification for it. I think the idea that BritBox is leaning into mysteries and crime in particular sounds like it makes perfect sense to me. Anecdotally from the Americans I talk to, about half of the supporters for my podcast are based in the States. I think they are the ideal people for BritBox. They want the classic British cosy crime, Midsummer Murders, Inspector Morse, things like Why Didn't They Ask Evans with Hugh Laurie. That's exactly the kind of content that I think is associated with Britain, even if it's not all we watch and produce here. And therefore, it's going to be a really strong genre for BritBox as they're trying to acquire more American subscribers. Yes, I mean, I guess Midsummer Murders, I mean, you can binge through that. It's probably hundreds of episodes to watch. But also, uh, Caroline, news this week about a Death in Paradise spin-off as well from the BBC. It is a hugely popular genre, isn't it? It is hugely popular. And this idea of franchising within it is a well-trodden path. You know, think of we had Morse and then we had Lewis and then we had Endeavour. Endeavour, I think, is now coming to an end. I'm just waiting for the the fourth uh, Inspector Morse property (laughs) to emerge, some zombie-like from the grave. His His mother-in-law, a news agent he met once, you know, whoever. Uh, But it it definitely seems to work, though, doesn't it? You know, rather than... Mm. trying to bring people to an entirely new set of characters in a new place, spinning out of something they already know and love absolutely works. So, you know, why stop doing it, I suppose? Well, the people that sort of invented uh, binge-watching was Netflix. That was one of its its big things, dropping whole series in one go. There seems to have been a bit of a retreat from that recently. Kate, I think you've been following this quite closely. Netflix dropping it all at once, are they backtracking? Yeah, it's really interesting to see them, let's say, pivot on, on something that's been a major USP for Netflix from the beginning and something that they said they'd never sort of abandon. The new Stranger Things is not being dropped all at once. Uh, they're dropping a big portion of it, but they're holding back a couple of the episodes till the next week or the next week. And it's uh, fascinating to see this because, it, you know, it was such a USP. But clearly what's happening is, you know, competition is hitting them. And you're seeing the more traditional uh, streamers, and what I mean by that, the legacy broadcasting companies that are getting into streaming, like the Disney's, are saying, you know what, we're going to schedule this stuff. We're, you know, we're not going to drop it all at once. We're going to keep people interested. We're going to drop it week by week. They did it with Mandalorian. They've done it with some of the other spinoffs they've been, that they've come up with. 
and it works, you know, actually that people are okay. Appointment to view, hey, is not a crazy idea. So that was, that was very interesting to me. Netflix is going through lots of stuff right now. I mean, they've cut uh, some workforce. I think they cut 3% of their workforce, about 316 people. They also obviously are pivoting to advertising, which again, was another huge sort of tentpole. We will never do advertising. It will only be a subscription service. That, you know, changed. But last week they were in Cannes at the Cannes Lions, which of course is the big, big advertising fest where everybody gets together and talks about where the money's going and who's got it and who wants it. And Ted Sarandos, who's the co-CEO, of course, as we know, of Netflix, got up on stage and said, yeah, we're looking at figuring out our ad stack and who's going to do it. And maybe we're going to do a partnership with the likes of Google or maybe Comcast, or we might even work with Roku. And I mean, it was all sort of like, hey, we're, you know, we're going into advertising in a big way. So big changes, I'd say, at Netflix as they face more competition. Uh, well, that's it, isn't it? Nothing stays the same forever, even for the disruptors. Mm. Caroline, I thought it was interesting looking at, at podcasting from this sort of dropping individual episodes versus kind of dropping box sets. And podcasting has always been very episodic, but particularly in sort of short run series, there has been a, a habit now of people dropping whole series or doing things slightly differently. Do you think the telly world has trained podcast listeners that they should get their shows in a similar all you can eat way? I definitely think there is some of that Netflix effect as well, that once someone finds something that they're interested in, there's a case for saying, give it to them all, all at once, so that you then are their cue for the next day or week or however long mm. it'll take them to get through all of it. Because then you you don't risk them being drawn away by something else and losing their attention, they never come back. Which is a relatively recent thing in podcasting, really. You know, if you've been doing it for over a decade, you're so accustomed to the episodic rhythm and the whole idea that it's all about retention and building up that relationship so people come back, like appointment viewing, appointment listening. They mm. know that you're Wednesday mornings or Saturday evenings or whenever you always come out. So the box set mindset does feel quite alien to podcasting still. But I think the biggest indicator, the biggest thing that everyone was shaken up by was when Serial comes out in 2014. It's mm. episodic. It's famously episodic. Then when S-Town comes out, it all comes out at once. Every single episode all dropped in one go one day. And I think that was really the signal to podcasting that they could do that too. I think that mixed economy maybe is something that we might see a bit more in podcasting or people perhaps experiment a bit with a little more. Mm, I think places like Stitcher and Wondery have been trying this for a long time with their apps. Mm. You know, you've always been able to get all of a Wondery series on Wondery Plus. Whereas if you're listening for free, Slate Plus also famously did that after the success of slow burn you can get the whole thing in one go no ads and i think it's all part isn't it of having ways for different types of consumers to support you if they want to you're never going to transform a big percentage of your audience into that kind of subscriber but just by having the facility it means you're taking money from people who otherwise wouldn't have a way to give it to you so i think as a one of a portfolio of strategies i think it makes total sense well, someone who's had to evolve all of the different business models is uh, the CEO of Disney. This is Bob Chapek, who stepped in after Bob Iger's departure. Good news for him, Kate. He's had his contract extended for three years, but there have been a few rumblings about him. He hasn't had a, a blemish-free start, has he, at Disney? Oh, I'd say there's been more than just a little rumbling. I mean, just look at their <laughs> stock price. He's made a couple of missteps. The first one was with the anti-gay bill in Florida, 
he basically decided not to say anything about it. And the Disney staff just, you know, rose up and protested and said, you must say something about this. So then they did. And then, of course, it caused this huge rift with the Florida governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, who basically is very right wing. So that's a problem. They're now thinking of changing what Disney is taxed like and their powers in Florida, which, of course, is where they've got you know, their big park in Orlando. The second thing was, you know, Scarlett Johansson. I mean, there was this kind of big standoff between them, Disney and her about when they dropped the Black Widow, you know, before or after theatrical. And there was a huge rift there. And it looks like he wasn't really good with dealing with talent. And then the third thing was, you know, Peter Rice, which who is a very well-regarded executive. In fact, at one point, he was considered a possible successor to Bob Iger. And he suddenly was basically let go. And then, of course, the Roe versus Wade thing, which I talked to at the top, that's also been an interesting thing. I think he made the right move there, in my opinion. I think probably uh, most people would agree with that one. But it's caused a certain amount of problems, not only with the stock price, but with having to have his board actually say several times, we back you, Bob. But yes, this contract has been renewed for three years. The board at the moment is behind him. So that's that's good for him. Disney I mean, is such a huge organisation, isn't it? I mean, even when Bob Iger started, he had a sort of slightly bumbling start as well. Does it just take a while for these people at the top to get a handle on the monster that they're in charge of? Oh, that's a deep question. <laughs> I mean, it's not like Chipik didn't know the Disney culture. He's been there for years. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't think that's a good excuse for him. I really think, you know, obviously becoming the top person is a different job than if you're running a even a big division. So yes, there's there's that. I also just think it's a very volatile time right now. And between the politics that are going on in the US and the fact that the streaming economy, let's say, is getting more difficult, and the fact that the stock market had put a lot of, let's say, pressure on the streaming business. I mean, they're looking to the to Disney's pivot to streaming as being the sort of the savior of the company. Then you had COVID, you had all the parks closing. I mean, it's not been an easy time. But, you know, it's like with every big company when they do a big pivot, Matt. It's, you know, if you look at ITV pivoting into ITVX, I mean, that's the same kind of thing. It took a long time to get there. But now they realize that streaming is where they need to be. They're leaning into it big time. They're putting huge money behind it, $160 million extra in their budget from 2023 to do streaming. So I think, you know, these kind of decisions when you're a big company that's been doing one thing and now you have to flip to another thing is, you know, it's not it's not easy. Well, changes in companies uh, and changes for employees is another big story in the media this week. The Guardian's reported that NUJ members at Reach will take part in a postal ballot for industrial action after rejecting a 3% pay offer from the company. Caroline, um, industrial action has been in, in the news from a whole variety of different sectors. Are you surprised to see this um, on the front pages, about the front pages? Not at all. I think the same issues that are facing workers across all different sectors are the same ones that are affecting people in the media, you know, increasing cost of living, energy costs, all of this. But then there are also some sort of local newspaper specific issues that make this not surprising either. Declining readership, competition from Facebook, uh, relatively low pay for a job that now often requires a graduate degree, not just an undergraduate one, to, uh, to have a good chance of, of securing yourself a slot. So I think, yeah, all of these things, it, make, it makes total sense why a union would reject a 3% pay offer and hold out for more. The strike is still just at the ballot stage, so it's not definitely going ahead. But uh, I think the 
again, trends across the economy more broadly suggest that a strike could very well be on the cards. Also, it didn't help. There was a Daily Mirror front page on fat cap pay, pointing out that five chief execs were earning 86 times their average workers' pay, but failed to mention that the REACH CEO has a pretty high multiple of their average employee salary as well. That can't help those industrial conversations. Not at all, no. I think he got a package worth four million in 2021 when the uh, the average reporters earning 21,000 a year the disparity is quite stark there but i think the response to that has been really interesting you know this guardian report just refers to the comeback from the company is just well you know the best way for local journalism to thrive is with a successful commercial model and saying you know that that pay is totally normal in the rest of the private sector why should regional media be any different so I think there's an there's a kind of deeper ideological conflict there. What is the status of journalism? Does it have some kind of special conditions in which the public interest nature of some of what that media does means that it needs subsidy, it can't exist in, in a completely open market? Or is it just out there and, you know, you get the best pay you can or you go somewhere else? That seems to be what the execs are trying to push for anyway. Thanks both. Now on to our deep dive. If you work in the TV industry, you might have heard some chatter about passports recently. Well, these passports are to support inclusion and are an unprecedented cross-industry scheme to remove barriers for people with disabilities working in broadcasting. I spoke to Sam Tatlow from ITV and Kirsty Walker at Channel 4 to find out what is a passports, who it impacts and why it matters. The disability access passports came about um, about a year ago from a meeting that the broadcasters were having with Ofcom as part of their diversity and inclusion conversations, regular catch-ups that we have and was a commitment that we made to explore working collaboratively together on them. The passports are being rolled out in slightly different ways so the way that they're being implemented and the way that they're being used is slightly different but the purpose of the passports is to enable disabled people when they're joining a broadcaster to communicate their access needs and any adjustments that they might they might require in order to do their job to their best ability but the other purpose of them is to empower non-disabled colleagues at the broadcasters to have confident conversations about disability, about access requirements, so that they have something that gives them a bit of a template to follow the conversation through. It gives them the language to say, well, these are the kinds of questions you should be having with your colleagues, and is a prompt as well. So it enables, it enables us as broadcasters to say to our line managers that when a new person is joining your team, you should be asking them about their um, whether they filled in a disability access passport and if there is anything that they would like to share with you about it so that we can start the conversation. We wanted to encourage more people to be talking about disability, more people to feel comfortable and supported when having those conversations. And the hope is that it leads into better inclusion and more support for disabled people when they're joining our businesses. Oh, it's one of those things where, you know, everyone wants to be helpful, don't they? But they're yeah. sort of worried sometimes what they should be asking or shouldn't be asking. And I suppose it provides a framework, I guess, for, for both parties to kind of get on with it when someone new is going to join. Absolutely. And it, it takes the burden off of a disabled person to constantly have to 
self-identify and to explain time and time again what they need and engage in that conversation because the hope is that by having these passports it's encouraging our non-disabled colleagues to start the conversation themselves rather than us relying on disabled people to do that. Kirsty, you've been uh, overseeing the passport pilot at Channel 4 so how's it been going? It's been going really well and I think as Sam said you know the the framework for the passports is similar across the board but I think Channel 4 took a slightly different angle when we spoke to the employee resource group at Channel 4 who are called 4Purple. They were quite passionate about the fact that it shouldn't just focus on disability and wanted it to be all-encompassing with inclusion. So Channel 4's passport is called an inclusion passport and The premise is basically that it's for people to talk about things that they need in order to thrive or requirements they may need. But it could be anything, really. We have so many different things that kind of make up who we are. The pilot that we did at the end of last year, some of the feedback that came back for us was around people not being sure what they they could use it for. So giving people some examples and things that it has been used for around needing some space and time to pray during the day or time off for blood tests or sperm donations for IVF. It's literally anything, it's kind of conversation starters and I think people are kind of embracing the fact that it's being recognised that we do all have these things which make us different and we need to start talking about them and sharing them in order to kind of get the changes I guess that we need in order to be able to thrive when we're in the workplace. Sam the passports were rolled out in December at ITV. Kirsty was telling us there about how it's worked at at Channel 4. Uh, Have they gone down at ITV? Yeah so we started the rollout of ours on um, International Day of Disabled People. So on the 3rd of December, we started the rollout. The feedback so far actually has been positive. I've had a number of people come to me and say, you know what, I didn't feel confident disclosing before, or I didn't know how to have this conversation beforehand. And this has made me feel like ITV is a place that cares about this kind of thing. and, And I feel quite supported. Although we're six months in, we've not done an evaluation just yet so once that has happened we'll review kind of what the feedback is more generally across it it's worth just mentioning following on from what Kirsty said was that the view at ITV from our um, employee resource group ABLE was that actually they wanted a, a more focused piece around disability for the moment so that we could actually focus everybody's minds and focus everybody on on disability and as I said earlier you know we're all at different stages of our journey and I'm sure at one stage we will get to that place where everybody feels that they're more able to disclose more things about themselves that we can support with but at the moment our key focus for this passport specifically is about disability. I mean, Sam, you've been working in uh, diversity and inclusion for a number of years. In fact, I think you've just received your MBE for services to people with disabilities uh, at the Jubilee. So congratulations for that. Have you kind of mentioned there about you know, different HR systems and people are kind of going in different directions. Was it a difficult number of meetings to, to get everybody onto the same page? Or were people sort of there or thereabouts in different places? 
was it difficult? <laughs> there were quite a few meetings and we had quite in-depth conversations and, you know, ensuring that we were taking everybody along on the ride with us was really important, I think. I think that ability for us to be flexible so that each broadcaster could um, embed these in a way that felt relevant to them was really important in order for us to be able to kind of get this work kick-started. I guess what's important to note is that these passports are for internal staff. So those who are working within Channel 4 and those who are working within ITV and the other broadcasters, they're not used currently for freelancers. So when we're thinking about how we can support freelancers and those working within production that's the next step of the work and that is something that is that that scope of work is being worked through by pact at the moment and how we can support our disabled freelancers working in production because that is actually quite a key piece of this and it's the next step of the work because i think as I said earlier, you know, the representation of disabled people is so low and that is a particular urgent issue within production and is something that we're all very aware of. So I think that next rollout of it will be key. What's really great at the moment is that people's minds are, are focused on finding people from those underrepresented groups and, and giving them opportunities. I guess the challenge and the next step for the industry is ensuring that those people who are coming into the industry are supported and enabled to kind of take those next steps and stay in the industry and make their way up the career ladder too. That was Kirsty Walker from Channel 4 and Sam Tatlow from ITV. You can hear more of our chat, including why disability and inclusion passports could be a model for the wider media industry on our Patreon page. Also, to be honest, whatever sector you work in. Uh, so yeah, more in our Patreon. Go and become a subscriber, patreon.com slash media pod, uh, as well as getting access to extra uh, knowledge, information and our interviews. You'll be supporting the production of the show, which is very important to us. We'll be back after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey! 
And we're back with part two of the media podcast. Still here with me are Caroline and Kate. Of course, they're mainly sticking around to see who will win the media quiz crown uh, in just a moment. But first, a big move in the world of podcasting was announced at the end of last week. A UK-based audio studio novel has made an influential hire, making Julie Shapiro from Radiotopia their executive creative director. We had Julie on the show a few weeks ago. She chose not to break the big news on the media podcast. But it's quite big news in in, in the podcasting world, isn't it, Caroline, to have Julie move across? Yes, well, I think Radiotopia and PRX were very much identified with the sort of middle of the last decade wave of podcasting, you know, as a, an independent podcast collective, Radiotopia was incredibly influential. It's what a lot of people from outside the US aspired to that kind of model where podcasts could be heavy hitting and successful, but they could also, creators could retain their own IP and all of that. I think there was a bit of unravelling at Radiotopia towards the end uh, some question marks over their responses to Black Lives Matter and the diversity of the podcasters they chose to work with. But Shapiro definitely still has a sizable reputation in podcasting. I think it's interesting for what it says about Novel's ambition that they've chosen to bring her on at this point. And they've made some other hires as well that I think very much show that they're they're trying to bring in talent that's really embedded in the the history of the podcast industry, that they're not newcomers, essentially. Do you think Novel have sort of elevated themselves to being kind of the top of the queue of, of UK-based podcast production companies? Do you think they're our, our great white hope? I think I agree with you that the way they're, they seem to be moving in a business sense is interesting to see. I'm also interested to see whether that kind of more American aggressive acquisitional uh, attracting international talent model, does that work? Does that produce effects in this different media environment? I am slightly less convinced of their content so far. I don't feel like they've had a, a real banger of a hit yet, shall we say, which is just unequivocally identified with them and is going to make their name in the way that to go back to a podcast like Slow Burn, for instance, you know, that the first series of Slow Burn really, really sort of ripped through the podcast ecosystem and really put its creators on the map. I don't know if Novel have had one of those yet. And so I think they need to, they need to basically to back up these business moves. They need to have some editorial that sort of walks the walk. Well, hits are the thing. We'll keep an eye on Novel and see uh, how they do, whether they jump into the acquisition space uh, or whether they have more hires or more hits. But before we get there, though, obviously, the most important thing is to think about the media quiz. And this week, it's entitled Media Deals. It's almost like we think about where all these stories go. Media Deals. I'm going to describe a story in which a media company is making a bold deal just buzz in with your name if you know the answer to the question. So, Kate, you will say... Kate. <laughs> and Caroline, you will say... Caroline. Right, here we go. Question number one. Audio streaming provider Napster is planning a comeback, another one, uh, but centred around which new technology? Kate. Okay, Kate, what are Napster going for? Well, it's interesting. They're going for NFTs and crypto. Hey, who would have thought, right? <laughs> Amazing. Basically, it's about an acquisition. They've been purchased by Hivemind Capital Partners. And Matt Zhang, who runs the place, basically is into cryptocurrency. This is what he's all about. And so essentially, he's going to use Napster as his vehicle to you know build on this whole move. And I love that they're going to do a native token, the symbol dollar sign Napster, right, to buy tickets to other products on the platform. So it's, it's a pivot for Napster, which obviously 
was the whole all about, you know, free music, remember all that. And this is yet another pivot for them. NFTs is something I've been writing about uh, recently. You know, there's lots of buzz about it. There's lots of money being wagered on it. In my opinion, it, you know, an NFT for a piece of content is, is a good thing in the sense that, you know, that's obviously worth something. So if you have content or IP and you want to NFT it, so to speak, that's probably a good move. And I think that I've been sort of in my writing been saying to media companies, get your arms around this because it's coming out. It's not, it's not going away. This is definitely going to be something. We just don't know when it's going to actually mature. But Napster's shift is quite amazing. Quite amazing. Even if you think NFTs um, are all a bit snake oil, I think the technology is interesting, isn't it? And someone will reinvent it or put it in the right place at some point. Okay, question number two. Indie film company A24 has signed a deal with which US-based podcasting firm to Caroline. adapt audio and content? Caroline, who is it? It is Pushkin Industries and Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, so t tell us about Pushkin. So Pushkin is a primarily audio-first company formed around the author Malcolm Gladwell. They've done what they call some audiobook first deals in the past with writers like Michael Lewis. And now they've sort of just extended, I suppose, they've already been participating a little bit in that sort of cross-media pipeline from podcasting to other forms. And this deal will just further assist them in doing that. And that's correct. A point to you, so a point each. And finally, question number three. Channel 4 is preparing to sign the deal with ITN to keep what on air for the next five years? Kate. Kate. What are they doing a deal for? Their news program, which is interesting. Um, Channel 4, as we know, uh, is in the midst of, let us say, a big fight with the government about whether they should be privatized or not. Channel 4 obviously feels they shouldn't be privatized. The government, led by Nadine Dorries, is pushed back and said that they will be privatized. Interestingly, uh, since this seems to be going ahead, the Channel 4 management has decided to try to redo their contract for their news program, I think for another three years. And of course, some people in the in the government are sort of saying, well, why are they doing that? They're just trying to make Channel 4 uh, you know, more difficult for an, a buyer. Well, in my mind, Channel 4's news is very, very important. So whoever buys it should be trying to keep the Channel 4 news you know, the way it is. So that's what's going on. The other thing that I think is interesting about this is that a lot of people are starting to come out of the woodwork and say, yeah, we'd bid for Channel 4. And it's not just private equity companies, which is a, a relief in my mind. Berlusconi's uh, Media for Europe company has said they might look at it. Uh, and Idris Elba, who obviously we know is an actor who also has a production uh, company called Nemora, he said he would look at it, make a bid. So it's an interesting... Um, interesting moment in for channel four i think it's all about politics but we'll see do you think idris elba would be uh, a good custodian of channel four someone like idris elba you know a, a progressive uh, celebrity having control of it would be fascinating for what it does for media relations with the government it would definitely be a curveball well well done to kate uh, you in the media quiz uh, you got two questions right there um, and i will exchange those answers for tokens in the new media quiz uh, <laughs> nft uh, marketplace um, oh great uh, you, can put them in, you can put them in your wallet with all your declining bitcoin and i'm sure it'll make you a fortune uh, later on. Caroline and Kate, uh, thanks for joining us today. Caroline, where can people keep up with what you're doing? 
The best place is my website. It's carolinecrampton.com and you can find links to everything I'm doing there. And Kate, how can people keep up with you? I'm a columnist for Broadcast Magazine, so I'm there. And I also have a website which has some of my stuff on it. It's just my name.com, so katebulkley.com. Lovely. Thank you both. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that's it for the show this week. Remember, we love it if you tell your friends about the podcast. The best way for podcasts to grow is through recommendations. So if you genuinely enjoy it, please tell people around a water cooler if you still have one uh, or a virtual water cooler maybe on your LinkedIn page or on Twitter it really does help the show grow and that's important for us alternatively why not become a patron of the program as well you can do that at patreon.com slash media pod as a thank you for supporting the program we'll also give you access to our full length interviews with top media experts if you want to sign up just do it at patreon patreon.com slash media pod Uh, Well, that's it for us today. Uh, If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to the show. It's free on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Or just tap in to your web browser, podfollow.com slash the media podcast. My name's Matt Deegan. You can find my weekly newsletter about the audio industry and more at mattdeegan.com. For the show, the producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill. It was a Rethink Audio production. We'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.